Listeners, we need to talk about the holidays and divorce. It's a stressful time for families, especially when alcohol is involved, and our friends at Soberlink want to help. Soberlink has teamed up with divorce and family law experts to bring you information you didn't know that can provide peace of mind during the holidays. For those of you who still haven't heard about Soberlink, it is the solution for you if you are going through a divorce and custody case involving alcohol. Whether you are falsely accused of alcohol use or are concerned about your child's safety because of your other parent's alcohol use, Soberlink can help. Soberlink works hard to keep children safe, offering a remote alcohol monitoring system that is the gold standard because of its technology. Don't miss out on Soberlink's free guide for the upcoming holiday season. Request it today at www.soberlink.com backslash Susan. Coming up on today's episode of the Divorce and Beyond podcast. Going through the premarital agreement process and, you know, working with an attorney and finding out before you get married, okay, what's the standard contract I'm going to be given? And how, if anything, do we want to change that? You know, and it's it's not black or white. It's not like you have to accept the default or opt out. You can really, um, at least in California, except for child-related things, agree to anything that you want. Hello, and welcome to the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host. As a top divorce attorney and family law mediator for 30 years, I know what you need to know to get through your divorce, and most importantly, how to move beyond it to thrive and transition to your new future. My experts and I are here to give you the insider view into the process, so listen in for the wisdom and expert information you need on your journey through divorce and beyond. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host, and today is this is going to be a really interesting podcast episode for you listeners because we are focused not on your divorce and beyond, but on your marriage. So that might be your beyond. Uh, for many of you, it will be your beyond, but we are really going to be talking about how to avoid that divorce and how to, as my guest said, consciously couple rather than consciously uncouple. Um, and I was so excited when she wrote into me with this idea of the episode. So I'm delighted to have Monica Maze with me today. She is one of my attorney colleagues from California. Monica handles high net worth and ultra high net worth divorces up in the, um, you're in the San Francisco and the Bay Area, right, Monica? Lucky you. That is such a nice place to be and certainly a place where you're going to find those high net worth and ultra high net worth divorces. Yes, it's great. Uh, we have I have a lot of clients in Silicon Valley. So as you can imagine, you know, being in the tech hub, we deal a lot with private companies, prenups, business issues. So it's very interesting. I can, I bet no day is the same <laughs> as any other day. <laughs> So, and that's actually sort of where I think this probably came up for you. You mentioned the the term prenup, the words prenup. And I know, you know, we'll talk a little bit about prenups, maybe in what I think most of my listeners think about prenups as, but you also have, you know, a, a relatively 
Um, forward thinking, I think, for our profession, uh, divorce attorneys, thinking about ways to make prenups a way to keep people together, um, for people to really go into that prenuptial agreement and use that that as a vehicle to sort of bring themselves together and work through some issues before they ever get to the point of that prenup being need to needed to being used during uh, a divorce or down the road. So I'm excited to talk about this. I do want to point out because this is something um, that you have achieved or, or have gotten uh, the certification in California as a certified family law specialist. Some of my other guests have had that, but I've never talked about what that is. And I do want to highlight it because I think it's a really special um, aspect of California family law that not m many other states actually have. I practice also in Connecticut uh, in New York, and they don't have this sort of a designation. Can you explain to everyone what a certified family law specialist in California is? Sure. So in California, to become a certified family law specialist, you have to be practicing a certain number of years, and you also have to uh, pass a test. It's a written, it's a written test and it's basically testing your knowledge about everything family law, um, on a pretty advanced level. And so if you meet that test, um, they'll certify you in family law. There's also a peer review, review component to that. So you do have to submit referrals from at the time that I did it. It was at least five opposing counsel. And I thought that was really interesting that they ask you to put names of opposing counsel, but but that's really um, how to get a whole, you know, how to test someone's kind of reputation, you know, how they work is to ask the people that have to work against them. So that's what California does. Um, it's a pretty rigorous test. People usually study for, you know, at least a month uh, for it. It's not the, the bar exam, but it's kind of like a mini truncated family law exam. Um, and so in, in family law in California, um, it's 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 a big deal. And if you want to practice kind of in the high net worth area, it's really important that you get that certification. Yeah. So if you see if you're a California individual who's going through divorce or any family law matter and you see CFLS on an attorney's um, bio page or after their name, you know that this is someone Monica's being very modest because when she said it's, you know, a high level of knowledge of family law in California, this is a very rigorous test. This is very hard to pass. It's beyond a mini bar because it's so in depth into the particulars of California law. And as someone who had to take California's bar exam not that long ago after 30 years of being out of law school, that alone was really hard to do. So I can't, I never, I never took the CFLS exam, but bravo to you. And I, I asked you to go through that because I want people to understand, you know, you're really at a very high level of, of the practice practice in California, you deal with a lot of people who have very complicated financial and personal issues in their divorce. So when you're talking about this conscious coupling and doing a prenup um, that helps people to stay together, to consciously couple, um, I think that that is a significant uh, issue for people to understand. Um, and so I want to talk about that. So what made you think of 
consciously coupling. We've all, and I do want to reference, conscious uncoupling comes from Catherine Woodward Thomas. And of course, we all know it because of Gwyneth Paltrow um, and and, uh, Chris Martin's divorce. But uh, it is conscious uncoupling is, is one form of going through divorce, but conscious coupling is a very different thing. It is. So I'll tell you what gave me um, the idea and why I've become such a proponent for this concept. You know, after, you know, over 20 years of, of handling people's divorces, I can't tell you how many times a client, you know, I would explain what the default law is in California, you know, like all your earnings are community property or, you know, that business you started during marriage. Well, that's community. And they would say, but no one told me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> wait a minute. Hey, I didn't know I was signing up for that. And they're exactly right. You know, if you think about it, you know, we sign a contract when we rent a car, you know, we sign um, a document when we're purchasing a house or, you know, leasing an apartment. But this, the states don't hand you a pamphlet when you get married to let you know what you're signing up for. So you're given almost a, a template contract that you've never seen and that you've never signed, but it's going to apply to you. The more I talk to people, you know, had they known that, they would have maybe adopted some of it, but probably would have wanted other provisions for certain things. And they didn't even realize that that was an option. And I said, this is exactly what a premarital agreement can do. You don't have to accept the default law in your state. It might not work for either of you. It might not be what either person wants or what works best for that couple. So I think, you know, going through the premarital agreement process and, you know, working with an attorney and finding out before you get married, okay, what's the standard contract I'm going to be given? And how, if anything, do we want to change that? You know, and it's, it's not black or white. It's not like you have to accept the default or opt out. You can really, um, at least in California, except for child-related things, agree to anything that you want. You know, so I have some clients that say, well, if I start a business during marriage, I don't think it should be all community, but I also don't think it should all be my separate. I think it should maybe be 60% my separate and 40% community. I mean, people can really agree on anything they want. You know, not only does that agreement dictate what happens if there's a divorce, which means less costly, less time consuming, less emotionally draining process, but it it makes the couple have to really think about these things. You know, how do we feel about our earnings during marriage? How do we see, you know, spending during marriage? Um, you know, how do we feel about estate planning issues. It it just, it it brings up all of these things that normally you're not going to ask on a first or 20 or 30th date. I mean, you just don't talk about it. We're moving away from more of the traditional marriage, accepting the default and more to people being aware that they have this option and wanting to create something that's really tailored to themselves. Here in uh, Northern California, where I practice, most of my premarital agreement clients are millennials who um, live and work in in Silicon Valley. Um, They're all very knowledgeable about these agreements. There doesn't seem to be um, as much bias or or taboo about them or bringing them up. A lot of the couples, both of them work either in tech or have their own companies, um, and they are very much interested in making their own rules. And so right now I have 50 to 60 premarital agreements going on right now. (laughs) 
That's a, that's a sizable amount. Good for and you. Most, and the majority of those are under 40, are couples under 40 that um, are privy to this concept and really want to figure something out that works for them. As the younger generations are getting married, I think we're going to find that they are much more interested in creating their own agreement and their own path than accepting you know, the default in California. I predict there's almost going to be like a mandatory prenup where people have to make choices before they get married about what they want to adopt. And other countries have something similar to that already. Um, and the U.S. never has. But I, I think I think that's where, where we're headed towards. And I do think that it's going to make for stronger marriages, for one, because you've been forced to talk about all of these issues. But two, if, if you have to unwind the relationship, it's going to be a lot easier because you've pre-agreed on what's going to happen if that's the case. Yeah. It, well, I mean, think about it. You opt in or opt out all the time, right? We, we enter into some sort of agreement to download an app on our phones and we opt in and opt out. And I think it's very significant for listeners out there to understand because I don't think people, and I found this throughout my career as well, people have absolutely no idea that when they walk down the aisle or Ben and Jen just did it, you know, in Vegas. I don't know if there was an aisle, but, you know, Elvis serenaded them on their way down. Um, they don't understand that going through that ceremony and the romance and the, the all of that creates this legal relationship and these obligations and rights that exist from that moment forward, from the minute that marriage is legalized, there are rights and obligations that they have to each other that they never had to each other in the past. And when you go into this prenuptial agreement and this discussion around prenuptial agreements, you that is your one and only, or at least your first opportunity, I guess I should say not one and only, opportunity to really one, talk about what those rights are and those obligations that go into place and to opt in or opt out or vary, as, as you were saying. It, you made me think another one of our California colleagues, uh, Laura Wasser, when I was interviewing her, said something to the effect of, if you can't sit down before your marriage and talk about these things, you should probably be thinking about whether you should be getting married at all, right? These are these are your money and your, your efforts jo jointly together in creating your partnership, yet so many people don't want to have those conversations. Um, I think it's also significant what you pointed out that as younger generations are getting married, because I think we know that people are getting married older. They're getting married after they've been single for a time period and after they've both had that opportunity to go out and sort of amass their own um, estate, their own assets and liabilities and have their own personhood established both financially. So are you seeing that taking away some of the stigma around going into a prenuptial agreement or talking about that? Yes, I think, you know, I think there's two reasons that there's less of a, a negative stigma to these agreements. I mean, one is you, you know, the younger generations have read about these agreements, you know, in the in the news and the tabloids, you know, probably their whole lives in terms of celebrities having them. So they know what they are. They've heard the name before. And also, like you mentioned, you know, we're finding couples um, where where both 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 of them are educated. Uh, you know, both are working, 
right? And so we don't have, as we've we've had in past generations, a more kind of a tra- what we would think of as a traditional marriage where one person's working and one person's staying at home. So both people come to the table feeling like they have something to protect. And I think it's it's a little bit different perspective. And both are equally interested in having the agreement as opposed to, you know, there being a big disparity and the wealthier person, you know, wanting this agreement. Um, it's really both people have a vested interest. Both people have businesses or ideas or stock options, you know, um, that they want to talk about. And I, and I think that's a, a big difference and a major driver of that generation embracing these agreements and, and wanting them and, you know, calling around. I mean, we can't even... We have to turn them away. There's there's so many right now. The few of us that do them, we, we can't handle all of them. That's how many uh, there are and what a big demand there is for them. Which is relatively new. I mean, I can say having practiced for 32 years and I was in the New York City um, area, we have a lot of hedge funds. A lot of those people you know, would want prenups. But this was always a very touchy topic. And generally, people were coming and knocking on my office door a week or two before the wedding. This was not something that got brought up as a conversation between couples. Most often, it was something that was kind of sprung by one of them on the other. And I suspect you're seeing something different these days as, as you describe it. When do people the, now, you mentioned you have you know 50 or 60 prenups, when are people coming to you to start this conversation? Usually not early enough. I, it ranges everywhere from six months before their wedding, you know, to three months or two months before. I think ideally you want to leave yourself at least six months um, because it's easier on the couple because you're, you're going to have to deal with this while you're also wedding planning. So you want to kind of get ahead of this so that you can focus on the last minute, you know, wedding details and and not be talking to me a couple days before the wedding. Um, so I would say the sooner, the better. I also have a lot of couples that get engaged and they start this process and we don't have a wedding date yet. I mean, that's really ideal because there's no timetable. They're just going to get this agreement done and then they'll, they'll set a date, you know, for the wedding. And you know, so... I was just going to going to ask because I think that's a what most people uh, might be asking themselves or, or questioning right now. What does the process look like? What is it that happens when, say, a couple comes to? Is it a couple that comes to you, or is it one party or the other? Um, both. So I mediate premarital agreements, which not a lot of people realize they can be mediated. So I meet with the couple. <laughs> um, Yay. <laughs> um, just the two of them. Now, they're, they're each going to have to have their own attorney review the actual document before they sign it. But but in our Zooms, it's just the three of us. And we, you know, we go through and we talk about all the default in California and what what their thoughts are about it. And do they want to change that and and why? And I and I try to provide them with with examples or, you know, different options. Um, but it's really talking talking through those issues together collaboratively, the three of us, you know, to reach an agreement that works for both of them and was really kind of what they both want. Um, and then I drop the agreement and they each have an attorney that reviews it with them and, and signs off on it. The majority of my prenups, I represent one of um, the soon to be, you know, married. The other person has their own attorney and we kind of uh, trade you know, emails and drafts between the attorneys. But again, you know, very collaborative. This isn't a divorce. This is a prenup. 
one person has one idea and the other person has another, um, we can always find a way to, you know, meet in the middle and, you know, draft something that, you know, work, works for both of them. So it should be a very collabor- collaborative process. The more the couple talks at home, the better. <laughs> you can't just rely on your attorneys to do the talking because this is so personal, you know, and this is this is your life. So you do have to have sometimes some hard discussions at home about financial issues or, you know, estate planning, you know, provisions. I mean, no one wants to talk about money, divorce, or death. Those are the three things people want to avoid. And those are the three things you have to talk about. So, um, you know, I try to coach my clients to make it easier for them to, to bring these up at home and give them some talking points or some examples, um, you know, but it really should, you know, most of my clients and sometimes there's hard times during the process where they've really had to dig deep and have difficult conversations. But once we're done with the agreement and they put it in a drawer, hopefully to never look at again, they look back and think, wow, I think that going through that process was actually really helpful. We would have never talked about that, uh, you know, if it wasn't for putting this agreement together. listeners, did you know that you can now listen to Divorce and Beyond on your favorite audiobook platform, Audible? If you're like me and you love your audiobooks along with your podcasts, this is a great time to check out Audible memberships. They have two levels, Audible Plus and Audible Premium Plus. You right now can get a free trial of Audible Plus, And if you decide to subscribe to Audible Premium Plus, you will also get up to two free audiobooks. So go to the links in the show notes to get these special offers, and I'll see you over on Audible. Stay tuned for more from Monica Mazzi as she shares her prenup expertise so that you can consciously couple. Most of my clients, and sometimes there's hard times during the process where they've really had to dig deep and have difficult conversations. But once we're done with the agreement and they put it in a drawer, hopefully to never look at again, they look back and think, wow, I think that going through that process was actually really helpful. We would have never talked about that, you know, if it wasn't for putting this agreement together. If you're finding this episode helpful, be sure to check out last week's show with Karen Yanis self-proclaimed philanthropy Sherpa and former executive director of Oprah's Angel Network as she shares all the ways that philanthropy can help you heal. Because if you're able to get outside of your own angst and your own trauma and start to think about other people, it, um, it makes an enormous difference. And a much smaller piece of your day is devoted to, well, what did I lose as opposed to what do I have to do? And now we return to today's show. We know as divorce attorneys that financial issues between a couple are one of the number one reasons people end up in divorce. And so in some ways, having these, what you've characterized as difficult conversations, and I certainly know that they can be, but having those discussions and coming to some resolutions or understandings can help avoid that later conflict that we've seen so many people have. Yeah, and another component to these premarital agreements is is both people have to list their assets and their debts, right? And so 
you know, both people have to put their cards on the table and you get to see, you know, if someone has student loan debt or credit card debt or, you know, what their assets are. That could be an uncomfortable question to ask someone. And that in, in this process, they just they have to provide it. So you get to see it. And there's a lot of transparency there, which I think is really helpful, because, again, without going through this process, the state doesn't require anything like this or premarital counseling. When I was in in high school, my local church parish priest did, you know, premarital counseling for for couples that wanted to get married in the in the church. He required that they come to the first um premarital um, meeting with their credit reports and they swap them. <laughs> that was I like that. Priest. That was like a very early, <laughs> you know, marital <laughs> agreement, right? Because it was like, well, you know, you got to put it all out there, right? Everyone should see, you know, what there is. Um, and that's kind of what a what a prenup does. Well, and significant point you've made there, and I, I do want people to understand, California has a statute about prenuptial agreements, and there are certain like boxes you have to check for that agreement to be considered enforceable under the law. And I just want to point out to listeners, I think every state in the country right now has some sort of prenuptial agreement statute. Mm -hmm. The the, uh, requirements for validity may vary, but they generally are some of the things that you've already mentioned. There has to be full financial disclosure. Both parties either have to have their own attorneys review the agreement or at least have had the opportunity. California has a few other options. requirements. Yes. In California, a new requirement that just came out a few years ago is that the final version of the agreement has to sit for seven days before the couple signs it um, without any changes to it. You have to build in that that window for making sure you can sign it before the actual wedding ceremony. So because uh, I had one couple who I remember back in the day doing a, a prenuptial agreement and they had me deliver the final version to the church so they could sign it just before they walked down the aisle. That would not work in California. It reminds me of when you join a gym and they have to give you a three-day right of rescission on those agreements. This is sort of the same thing. Let everybody really think about it. But understand those requirements are put in place so that everybody is protected and everybody is getting full disclosure, is fully supported in signing that agreement. Because, and here's another aspect I want to make sure we we talk about, once you sign that agreement, they are generally enforceable. Yes. The, the courts, at le- you know, at least in California, and I, I think this is probably true of every state, you know, they want these agreements to be enforceable because it keeps people out of their overcrowded courtrooms with their divorces. So, you know, they want they want public policy. They want people to enter into these agreements. They want them to be able to rely on them. And, you know, they want them to be upheld so that people aren't, you know, litigating, you know, in court. And in my experience, they're generally upheld. These agreements should be fair and they should be balanced to have a valid agreement is what I tell my clients. Um, if you have a um, an unfair or imbalanced agreement, it would can likely be set aside if it's challenged. So what's the purpose of that? The agreement really should provide certainty to people in case the re- relationship ends, uh, but it needs to be fair in order to be enforceable, in my opinion. So um, it has to be balanced and it can't be one-sided. And and I actually, I ran into that 
in a case where I had one client, he had been through a divorce. So he wanted his prenup for his second marriage to basically say, if she leaves me, she gets zero zilch and nada. And I, I, I had that conversation with him at the time that that's fairly draconian and not likely to be upheld at the time. I don't want you to waste your time and mon money entering into agreement today that will have no bearing in a courtroom down the road if it were to be called into into question. But if the people have a fair opportunity to sit down at a table, or I love the fact that you mediate them on Zoom, that's my world, my listeners know, you know, as long as everybody has their chance to be heard, be fully participatory in this and have full disclosure, these agreements are actually a better way for an, if a divorce happens, a better way in many ways for people to proceed through that divorce process, because you mentioned it earlier, there's less cost, there's less time, and there's less stress for people because you've already worked through these these issues. Yeah, you know, even when I represent the less wealthy person, sometimes there is a disparity, and sometimes I'm representing the person with a lot less. And you know, sometimes they can be apprehensive about these agreements, but I tell them this, this is good for you. This is your opportunity to ask for what you want while you guys still like each other. Try doing this 10 years from now, possibly when you guys can't stand each other a lot harder. So, you know, I, I, I think if, if you're the person coming in with less, this isn't bad. This is great. I so love that you said that. That is definitely going to be an Instagram <laughs> post, everybody. Look for it because that's the quote of the episode uh, because you're 100% right. And I've had that conversation with people, you know, do not, because you do run into this as well. I'll sign anything. Just put it in front of me. I had a, a real tug of war with one couple where I was representing the person who who was really coming from with into the relationship with much less financially. And he didn't even want to read the agreement. He just said, whatever he wants in it, I'll sign it. I don't want to go over it with you. I just give it to me to sign. And I kept saying, you know, this is really your opportunity to have those conversations. You won't have that opportunity down the road if you sign it today. So it is a truly significant contract when you do enter into it. But but as you pointed out at the top of the episode, you're already entering into a contract. You just don't know what's in it in most cases. Gives attorneys shivers down their spine and in so many cases never sign an agreement you don't know what's in it. But let me ask you because I I we've talked about the financial side of prenuptial agreements. Um, I just recently in my August episode headlines episode there was an article about the Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez marriage that recently happened. And back when they were engaged 20 years before they got married, they did have a prenuptial agreement. It was widely reported, at least in the press, that it had a no cheating clause that basically said, if Ben cheated on Jen, she the prenup was invalid and she would get half of everything. I'm paraphrasing. According to press reports this time, when they actually did get married, they did not have a prenuptial agreement, which is, is quite surprising and interesting if that's true. But what about these lifestyle clauses, uh, cheating clauses? We hear a lot of different ones. What, what do you have to say about that? So in California, they're not enforceable. And it's kind of why put it in the agreement. You don't want to jeopardize the validity of the whole agreement by having 
a clause in there that can be thrown out. Uh, so I don't put them in my agreements because they are not enforceable. That is a that's one that I get asked about a lot, a cheating one. I've gotten asked about a weight gain clause, less money if the person oh. gains weight. And I can't say who the couple is, but they're a Hollywood couple and they're actually still married. It's been like 20 some years. And he had asked for that and and I had said no. They actually are still married. <laughs> so and and you also can't pre-agree like where you're gonna live if there's a divorce. You can't make someone, you know, live in the same state or say that they can't move. You, you know, you can't do that. So it's kind of why bother, you know, putting that in since it's not enforceable. And there's plenty of other stuff to decide in the prenup. So <laughs> I like your practical approach. <laughs> And But you also mentioned something I want to circle back to about things you can't determine in a prenuptial agreement. And you mentioned about children. Uh, so I would like to make sure we highlight that for listeners. So in California, we can't predetermine custody. So we can't say if there's a divorce and their children, you know, mom's going to have most of the time or dad's going to have most of the time. And we also can't uh, predetermine child support. Um, so those have to just be decided if and when. Right. And I think that I also think that's pretty universal in the United States. Um, and generally that comes down to the fact that what's in children's best interests is the overriding presumption. And you cannot predetermine what is in children's best interests, especially before they even exist um, in a prenuptial agreement in many cases. So there there will still be, and, and I always point this out to people, um, if you have a prenuptial agreement, there are still going to be financial issues that need to be discussed and determined at the time of a divorce if you have children, because now you'll have support issues. And as you just said, you'll have custodial issues. But a large part of what you would also have been discussing, perhaps spousal support um, and your financial property settlement will often have already been determined, although that may vary now that you have children. One in California, at least one of the most largely litigated issues is spousal support. And probably because California doesn't have a formula. So it lends itself to being a, a highly litigated um, issue. So if you can predetermine that, or even a formula to determine spousal support, because we don't have one, I mean, that in and of itself will save a lot of time and attorney's fees than kind of just starting with what the default provides in California, which is a little all over the place. And depending on what judge you get and what side of the bed they woke up on, literally will decide the outcome. They're all it's 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 all different from from courthouse to county to judge. There's not a consistent outcome. And so that's why I also bring that up when I represent the less wealthier person because there's no consistency um, spousal support in California. It's seen as very rehabilitative now. So we're not seeing long-term spousal support awards. So we can predetermine what you're going to get in terms of amounts. If, if someone has, you know, um, their balance sheets already, you know, kind of what it's going to be and they have the liquidity to make predetermined payments or we have a formula that we can just, you know, plug into and we define what's going to be income for purposes of that formula. Well, and you just you just raised a really um, important 
consideration for those who are entering into prenuptial agreements. I want to point this out for my listeners. You just had a very nuanced explanation around predetermining spousal support and alimony um, in a prenuptial agreement and then the various factors to be considered. I just want people to realize how important it is to have a knowledgeable and skilled attorney representing you and advising you when you are talking about these issues in your prenuptial agreement. Because when you're predetermining something like spousal support and you're making determinations that may not go into place for years to come, you want someone who can help you with that nuance of do we want to set a certain amount or do we want to put into place, as you just said, a formula so that it will take into consideration a lot of different um situations that may arise over time, right? We don't, I always say the law degree did not come with a crystal ball, right? So we don't know what the future holds. So important, and you just casually slip that into the conversation. But what it says to me is you are, a, you know, clearly a very experienced practitioner who understands, and I want listeners to understand that as well. We're talking about these as if they're simple and relatively simple things that people can understand. There's so much nuance to these financial issues that you're going to be talking about. And that's another reason why you want to start talking about this, not three months, not three weeks, not three days before the wedding. You want to have enough time because I would imagine you also at times have other uh, professionals involved as you're working through these financial um, terms in these prenuptial agreements? Yeah, sometimes I do. Um, I mean, I, I work at a firm where there's other practice areas other than family law, like estate planning, tax, corporate. So I'm pretty lucky that I can just pick up the phone and, and call someone. And I, you know, I've been doing them for so long um, that I really, I, you know, I've just, I learn so much every time I do a new one. Um, and now I've done, you know, thousands. So I have a lot to, um, you know, I have a, a lot of samples to pick and choose from or, oh, yeah, I remember when I did that, you know, in that case, and this is very similar, maybe they would like this idea. Um, you know, so by just doing so many, I've really had to work through some of the issues that continuously come up. And so now I have some, a few different options for people that I've kind of thought through and worked through already, which is the nice thing about about doing them so often <laughs> for so long. Well, and I'll be honest, I have colleagues who just won't do them. Um, I know several attorneys who basically have just eliminated prenups from their practice. And I think that that goes back to maybe that more adversarial aspect where we had in history, in the history of prenups, you usually had one spouse who was the wealthy or the, the well um, financially placed spouse and then the one who was less advantaged. Um, and so they could become very adversarial or were treated almost as if it was, you know, wealthy person versus gold digger or something of that nature. In fact, doesn't Kanye West have a song called <laughs> Gold Digger all about the prenup, right? So, but you're right. And this is another example I would like, you know, just to point out to listeners where finding a practitioner who has experience like you have is extremely valuable, not just from the fact that you've drafted 
so many of them that you're going to do that correctly, but also that, you know, each one's different and we get creative with these agreements. We get creative with our clients, especially I would say in the mediation process. And so what another couple has done, it may not be what you end up wanting to do, but it may spark an idea for you. So that option generating is, is another aspect of both a mediated prenuptial agreement, but also an experienced practitioner that's so helpful. Yes, exactly. I mean, to be honest, you, you know, attorneys don't make a lot of money doing premarital agreements. I think, you know, I did have one that was negotiated for two years, and I think that bill was $100,000. It was very complicated. You know, these are not generating a lot of fees. I think a lot of attorneys don't want to do them because of that, but I do them because I really like them. And I like the creative part of trying to come up with an idea that satisfies both people, is also legal, has no tax ramifications, you know, and I, and I like to work with happy people that are getting married. <laughs> so it's a good balance, you know, talking to my um, divorce clients. But I, I also am very passionate about premarital agreements. I think that everyone should have one. And, and that's why I do them, because I really believe in them. You know, I think if you asked everyone getting married, and you sat them down and told them what the default is, whether they have any money or they don't, they would probably disagree with something <laughs> that the state already provides them. And it had, if they had the opportunity, they would probably change that. Think about it, what the state provides is cookie cutter, right? It's It's been put in place to work, hopefully, for the vast majority of people, but we know that it doesn't work for everyone. And I think you're 100% correct that if most people were even knew exactly what they were set, you know, setting themselves up for financially and legally by entering into marriage, they'd at least want the opportunity to understand what that is and perhaps tweak it or, as, as we said, opt in or opt out um, of certain of the obligations. So I'm just wondering, as we bring this episode to a close, you've already mentioned, you know, the, the weight gain clause, which kind of blows my mind. Um, but any other good stories that you can share um, on a memorable prenup case? Yes. So about 10 years ago, I had a client uh, come in. She was um, maybe 30 at the time, 29 or 30. She didn't have very many assets, but she had an idea. She told me what the idea was. And of course, I thought, oh, I don't know who's ever going to sign up for that. <laughs> you know, in, in my head, I don't know about that, if that's going to work. And she was and she was also just engaged. And she said, I want a prenup because I want to protect my idea. You know, I'm, I'm going to start a company and I'm going to see this idea through and she was very adamant. Um, and I don't, and I don't remember where she had heard about prenups, but someone had obviously mentioned it to her. And she was very adamant about having one and very focused on protecting her idea um, and her business. And, you know, we put together the agreement. It, you know, it was signed. His businesses would be his, hers would be hers. And again, I I I never it, she told me the idea and I just I just didn't see a market for it. About three years later, I was in the airport and I was buying some magazines, uh, you know, in the airport store. And she was on the cover of Forbes and her business is now um, valued at over a billion dollars. <laughs> so one, the, I am a horrible judge of, <laughs> I could never be on Shark Tank. I'm like, that's a good business idea. I, I mean, totally out of touch. And second, I mean, look, she didn't have anything. I mean, she owned a car and I think that was it and rented an apartment. But, you know, she had this idea and she knew she wanted 
to protect it. And look, it could have amounted to nothing. And maybe so she paid a couple thousand dollars for the prenup. But but look what she did. I mean, you know, um, now that business is her own. And if there is a divorce, there's not. But if there is, she can decide if if anything, what, you know, what she wants to to, to give or not. So um, I was just blown away because she had such a tenacity and was very focused about about doing this and so young and and then became uber successful. I was pretty uber successful if it's at a billion. It reminds me of the the case of Jessica Simpson and Nick Lachey when they, they did have a prenup, but Nick was much more successful at the time than Jessica. And so the prenup basically said was all based on protecting his wealth and said nothing, unfortunately, about protecting hers. And she, you know, her popularity and finances exploded during that marriage. And she ended up having to make a sizable payout because of not having a prenup that went both ways. So glad, glad neither one of us were the ones drafting that agreement from her perspective. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. you said, we, there's no crystal ball. I mean, you, you don't know. I mean, you could have an idea that goes nowhere, or, or it could hit it big. And at least you you had some control over it and a discussion about it. And, but it just goes to show you, I mean, you don't have to be rich to have one or for it to um, become consequential later become important. It's somehow in your life later on, especially when you're young, and you're getting married, you don't know, what's going to happen 10, 15, 20 years down the road. You really don't. I wish the law degree came with a crystal ball because, well, goodness, think of the think of the things you and I could come up with if it had. But I really love this take on prenuptial agreements. I think you are 100% right. Prenups are going to become the norm. In fact, I think we're moving well into that space already. Um, and I, I really appreciate that concept of it being a very positive step forward for your future as opposed to uh, something that people dread and, and don't want to enter into and do everything they can to avoid. So if my listeners would like to reach out to you, get more information, what's the best way to do that, Monica? You can email me directly. It's M-M-A-Z-Z-E-I at Seidman, S-I-D-E-M-A-N.com. And I'll, of course, we'll have that in the show notes, as well as links to Monica's website or other information and her social media. I follow her on uh, Instagram and uh, LinkedIn. So be sure to reach out to her, get more information, consider a prenup so you don't end up like some like Jessica Simpson, so to speak, and go go forward with it thinking of consciously coupling. I really love that idea. So Monica, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me today on the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I hope you found some information and inspiration to help you on this journey. Please join me every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for a new episode. And if you like the show, please take the time to subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find more information on the website at divorceandbeyondpod.com where you'll find links to the YouTube channel, transcripts of the episodes, and other bonus content. So I'll see you next week to help you move through your divorce and beyond. Thank you.